Hi, I'm Maria Stolcher coming to you from Gadigal Land and welcome to episode 152 of Talking with Painters. I've got a special episode for you today. It's about the exhibition which has landed in Sydney and it's sure to be a blockbuster. It's called Kandinsky and it opened on Saturday at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Over 50 works take you on a journey through Vasily Kandinsky's life and art. He was one of the 20th century's most innovative and groundbreaking painters and one of the key leaders in the development of abstraction. It's the largest exhibition of Kandinsky ever to be shown in Australia and it's a Sydney exclusive. And 47 of these paintings have come from the Guggenheim Museum in New York, which has one of the largest collections of Kandinsky paintings. And the show has been curated by Megan Fontanella, who is the curator of modern art and provenance at the Guggenheim, together with Jackie Dunn, senior curator of exhibitions at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And I had the chance to talk with Jackie on Friday, and that's the interview I'm bringing you today. But what I didn't realise about Kandinsky was that because he lived through such tumultuous times through both world wars and the Russian Revolution, he kept relocating. He was born in Russia, but he'd lived back and forth between Germany, Russia and France, and he'd always form connections wherever he went. He was also a teacher and author and theorist, which probably accounts for so many fascinating aspects to his work. From his interest in spirituality in painting, music reflected in the forms, lines and colours in his work, his biomorphic paintings which featured curved organic shapes and of course his interest in geometric shapes, particularly the circle and triangle which I think many of us think of when we think of Kandinsky. And these works really need to be seen up close in real life. And I was watching a Kandinsky YouTube video the other day where the presenter suggested a three-hour viewing of a major Kandinsky work, which is probably a bit out of my comfort zone. But if I was going to do that with any of the works in this exhibition, it would definitely be Composition 8, which was painted in 1923. You'll find that more or less in the middle of the exhibition. You cannot miss it. It has a real energy about it with circles and lines and this very interesting use of black up against softer colours and it's a superb example of his abstract work. He made it in the period when he was working at the Bauhaus School in Germany, which was a very productive time for him. Another work I really loved, which you should definitely see, is the iconic painting Blue Mountain. And you'll see that as, you know, more or less as soon as you walk in the exhibition. It has the most beautiful, vibrant colours and visible brush marks with that horse and rider motif, which he would use in many paintings and which had a very spiritual significance for him. I've also got a second interview for you in this episode. It's with artist Desmond Lazaro, who has created this tranquil, evocative, family-friendly space within the actual Kandinsky exhibition. It has dark blue walls and a coloured labyrinth on the floor and this beautifully inviting drawing area, which I think is primarily supposed to be for kids. But when I went there on Saturday, it was basically taken up all by adults. (laughs) And actually, I felt like sitting down and drawing as well. Uh, If you go, you'll see what I mean. But it's definitely a place. If you have kids, you should definitely go and visit that space. Uh, But it is also a very interesting space, even if you don't have kids. The project is called 
point and line to plane, which is a reference to a text by Kandinsky. And Desmond shares many of the ideas Kandinsky was fascinated with, particularly with respect to colour and the idea that abstract forms have transcendental potential. And I've put a link to Desmond's website in the show notes. I actually videoed both of these interviews and I've included footage in those interviews of um, a video I've taken of the exhibition. And you can see both of those videos on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel and I've put links in the show notes. But you can also just keep listening as an audio interview to this podcast. And I've also uploaded some images of selected works on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. So there's plenty of ways that you can see the work. So here's my conversation with curator Jackie Dunn. And I started by asking Jackie how this excellent exhibition came together. When Megan Fontanella, who's the curator of the exhibition here and the uh, curator of modern art at, at the Guggenheim, was putting together her show in 21-22, which was really an attempt to, as they do reasonably often at the Guggenheim, but not for some time, really look at the kind of depth of Kandinsky's career. Uh, we talked earlier then about what would be possible for Sydney and how much of that extraordinary show could come. And there are certain elements that we can't whether can't travel for bequest reasons or for condition reasons but we really managed to have this extraordinary heart of the oil paintings of Kandinsky this is a little unusual for us here in in this show too because 40 years ago we had a similar number of works but most of the show was watercolor small pieces, works on paper, but to actually have the paintings here all together from 1900 through to 1944 is quite something. It's unbelievable. And it's so interesting to see the trajectory of uh, Kandinsky's mm. career because he started off as a lawyer. Yes, <laughs> He indeed. didn't start painting till he was 30. No, indeed. And it's interesting because on... Reading some of his biographical texts, and there are a couple of key ones that he's, he alludes to an absolute love of colour and a kind of box of paints, much like Matisse, in fact. He had a, you know, a kind of an epiphany of the way that colours related to each other in the box, you know, and the sense of the harmonising of different colours, of what red felt like when it was next to blue versus red sitting next to yellow. He actually talks about a memory of that from very young. But I think the, the thought of pursuing the life of an artist was just, you know, it wasn't part of his, um, his upbringing as a well-brought-up, highly-educated young man who would have been expected to go to university to do what he did, law and economics. Um, but it was clearly there. There was something in his past that he just wasn't allowing himself to, to proceed with. And so by the time he's 30, he's already decided he's going to abandon his PhD dissertation. He's already being brought into the academic world. And he sort of decides no, and he takes himself off to a printing company, you know, fine art printing company, and starts to work there. And then it's almost as though, right, what if I'm going to do this? You know, but he do, does have two very key moments um, just before he turns thirty, and um, and we can we can talk about yeah, what I they think, were. Well, I think one of them was Monet's haystack. It was so a visiting show of French painting in Moscow, and he sees one of the haystacks. And what I find interesting is not so much that he just saw something that he loved and thought he might become an artist. Something very profound and typical of Kandinsky. What 
really became apparent to him was that the haystack was this form that he didn't even quite recognise. And so what interested in him was not just the beauty of Monet, it was this abstract shape that he'd lost a sense of what it was in the world. He didn't recognise it as a haystack. He recognised it as this strange thing and realised that maybe the objective world could be dispensed with and that painting could be about something entirely other, could be about colour and the emotional response, which is extraordinary. That's so interesting. And what was the second? Oh, the second was in the same year. So in 1896, um, he also managed to see... Uh, a performance of the 1850 um, opera Lohengrin by Wagner. And there are all sorts of things about the Wagner performance that excited him. Something of a slight, you know, his tendency to looking at synesthesia, you know, whether it's an actual condition for him or, or just an area of real interest. So he starts to hear um, and see colours while he's listening to the music. There's also something else about Wagner, which is that Wagner is one of the the artist who, who really um, defines the idea of the synthesis of art. And I think that performance probably appealed to Kandinsky too because it was all about the staging. It was all about the look of it, the feel of it, or everything that surrounded the music, the words and the music going together. So that idea of synthesis also really emerges then and he finds that terribly exciting um, through that performance. Yeah quite an intellectual approach to his work. Mm. Um, he was involved with the Bauhaus school. Can you tell me a bit about how that, you feel that might have influenced his work? Yeah, I mean, he was headhunted, which is really interesting in a way. While he visited, while he was working um, with the, the kind of new regime in Russia after the revolution, and he was really a contributor to, to um, the academic world. You know, he was helping found new museums in socialist Russia. Um, he had tried to reform a home for himself after being kicked out of Germany, effectively, at the beginning of the war. And he'd sort of struggled with that relationship with the Russian avant-garde painters. And when he had an opportunity to do some research as an academic in the fine arts department, go to, to Germany, he, um, he was, you know, Gropius invited him and said we could get Kandinsky, who'd already made a name for himself in Russia as a teacher and as a, a real figure in, the, in arts administration. But the, in terms of the effect of the Bauhaus, you know, I think he found there a place that was very much like his early thinkings when he arrived in Munich. Within a couple of years of being in Munich, he had actually formed groups, artist groups like Phalanx, you know, and showing with artists, forming a sense of an art school. And it was one that believed in the synthesis of the arts again. It was the synthesis of traditional crafts, of, um, of drama and theatre meeting with painting, for example, and having this lovely kind of sense of immersion in, in a wider world of the arts. Of course, the Bauhaus, that was their aim. Their aim also was to be an art college that spoke about synthesis. Um, how, do, how do you have a... You know, Kandinsky headed up the wall painting <laughs> course, for example, and he also headed up the analysis of form course. So here was somebody who was already, as you suggest, deeply interested in the analysis of the elements of painting... And here suddenly was this wonderful opportunity after years in Russia where he didn't quite feel 
his creative homeland was. His spiritual homeland was there, but his creative homeland in a way was in Germany. So when he has that opportunity to explore exactly that terrain that he loves and to contribute, because he's a great contributor to what the Bauhaus was and what it still stands for today, then that really allowed him to explore this new moment where he, to put it simplistically, moves from a colour focus of analysis to an analysis of form and line, and it is a very dramatic sort of, and yet subtly nuanced um, transition, I think. Mm, And we can see in so many of these works that geometry that is coming through and the circle uh, that he was interested in so Mm. much. Can you tell me a bit about his approach to that side of his work? Well, I think they're they're forms that are elemental, of course, and that in itself is of interest to him. But I also think they had already become certainly the circle, but but very much so um, the triangle as well, had become forms that carried a kind of deep symbolic force for him and an understanding. So where early in his career we know that the horse and rider, for example, was a really amazing metaphor for him of the artist prophet who could carry, you know, carry society away with it, that sort of became the circle in a way. Um, it, it almost literally went through a transfiguration. You can see it in this show in various areas almost a closing of forms and suddenly to replace that early motif we get the circle as a symbol of harmony and of balance Um, it's also the symbol that takes us to an understanding of the spiritual realm you know an awareness and then for him the triangle was the same so it's almost reducing things down to their elemental structure in the way that different cultures have done for millennia and the, the triangle also becomes a really potent symbolic force for him, sort of symbolising how almost the avant-garde, the idea that you can push through, an artist can push through and lead society, and the triangle becomes a form that represents that sort of structure. So he, it, they're not, it's not just geometry, Kandinsky. Um, it's geometry with content. Yes, yes. And it's interesting you said about the avant-garde because, you know, he's considered one of the pioneers of abstract yeah. art. Yeah. So he must have been... I mean, I'm, I don't know if you thought about this, but mm. he must have been a certain sort of type of character yes. to actually... We, just, just, we, we were talking with some people this morning, Megan and I, and I think one realises how charismatic he must have been because he's deeply studious... Um, is absolutely committed. Once he makes that commitment to to become an artist, it's absolute. But it's very clear that everywhere he was from the earliest days in Munich throughout his life, he was seen as a sort of leader. And even though in Paris in his late, late life, he is very much more alone as an artist, but he's engaging with the surrealist community around him. But what I find even more interesting in terms of his character is they they fate him. You know, he, to them, is a figure of really... They're reverential towards Kandinsky. Breton speaks of him in the most extraordinary terms. So even though Kandinsky holds himself a little aloof from them, there's a sense that they recognise this, this quality of the kind of perhaps father figure to some, certainly a senior artist, certainly someone they respect. And we've kind of seen that time and again. So over some 40 years, it's almost like he's always the natural-born leader in the group and the community around him. 
So Megan Fontanella and I have talked very much about not wanting to suggest he is the father of abstraction. I mean, aside from the gender issue, there's a it's problematic. So many people were looking at that. So many cultures for millennia have dealt with abstraction in different ways. He does not stand alone. He's in community with other artists exploring that. And yet there's something in his character clearly where he seems to be the one who draws out so many of the threads. He's the one who theorises those ideas. And he really clearly is, is a figure um, for other artists. Yeah. And the gallery has commissioned a magnificent um, exhibition to run beside this exhibition mm. called Point and Line to Plane by Desmond Lazaro. Mm. It's sensational and um, I'm sure a lot of families are going to enjoy it. Can you tell me about the gallery's intentions in that respect? Indeed. It became a very interesting thought to bring in a contemporary artist in relation to Kandinsky and to look at the sense of continuity and thread um, that there might be with contemporary practitioners. And of course there were many people who deal with different aspects that, are, that one could chase out of Kandinsky's work. Um, but it felt terribly important to, to look at somebody who who had an understanding of the relationship of some of the things we've discussed, um, the potency of colour, the, the, the kind of um, metaphoric interest in colour, um, but also of the spirit. And of, in fact, we were terribly lucky with Desmond, of course, because what he also brought was a, an extraordinary understanding of all of the different cultural approaches to looking at how geometry is in the world and how geometry allows us to look at the universe and it's a way of abstracting the complexities of the universe in order to to really um, bring it home you know and to look at basic shapes and forms and say what is the content of those shapes and forms what is abstraction ultimately in in the way that we think about the world so Desmond's been a remarkable artist to work with he's created several new pieces for us but also the installation space itself and right at the heart of it is a beautifully coloured labyrinth that's been coloured according to the uh, planetary movement. But it's also a moment for kids and families to just walk the labyrinth and to breathe and to become calm in the space. Also create some other activities. But what we're very much hoping, because Desmond is a highly intelligent artist and a really thoughtful thinker, um, is that that there is a reflection back onto Kandinsky and vice versa. And to that we've also included the work of Georgiana Horton and Desmond has also been really attentive to Horton's seeking of the spiritual in the, in the, the non-visible, non-represented world. So I think, I think there's a beautiful sense in which he's hit on a kind of triangulation in our shows of Kandinsky's constant search for the spirit through form and Georgiana's seeking of something other. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think visitors to the gallery are going to just enjoy all aspects of the show. So thank you so much. For oh, thank you. Day. Thanks, Maria. And now here's my conversation with Desmond Lazaro, the creator of the project Point and Line to Plane. Again, you can see a video of this interview on the YouTube channel. And apologies for the poor sound. We recorded it on my phone and um, it subsequently underwent treatment to get rid of background noise, but I think it's come up okay. I started off as a temple painter at India and I studied the Indian miniature tradition, which is very figurative. And over the years, 
I've slowly moved towards more abstract form and geometry itself. Um, because it's a kind of a way where you, you slowly re remove imagery until you're left with the very basic concept of things, square, circle, triangle, these, these quite abstract forms, but they're also eternal forms. And I was interested in, in, in how you could engage with that today. That's, and in a way, that's what, you know, Kandinsky and, and many other artists have done. They've started off with the world around them and then they end up in the interior world. What interests you most about Kandinsky? I think he straddles many different ideas. I think underlying that is his obsessions with geometric forms as almost like ancient symbols that reoccur. And there's something about his love of science, art, spirituality sort of come together in one thing, it, obviously in his work. What he's sort of talking about is very ancient themes, which are more relevant today than even during his times when, you know, difficult times he lived through. Um, and there's something about his obsession with the circles as well, because the circle is, to a large extent, a symbol of eternity. And there's a lovely saying, which is, there's nothing more timely than the timeless. And I think he really understood that in his work. And I think he talked about that and wanted to communicate with that here and now. So the, the modern is every time. It's not one specific time. It's today. It's now. It's this minute. And that was something that we wanted to really explore in this project. Yeah. If you train in the Indian tradition, the, the line between mythology and form and figurative is very blurred. In, in, in life itself, it's quite blurred. We, we are neither one nor the, we oscillate between science and art. To me, they're all one and the same, which is the point that what Kandinsky was talking about. And what about colour? How did you approach colour in this series? I'm, I'm very much of the alchemical tradition of colour, where each colour is representative of a planet. So in other words, within, you know, like we're standing on this labyrinth, but each pathway is a symbol of another planet. So you're starting at the Earth at the centre, then the Moon, then Mercury, Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, etc. So in other words, each colour relates to an actual planet. So for instance, if you use vermilion, which is mercurial sulphide, it's the symbol of Mercury. Now, on a symbolic level, you can say that. But when you, you have the colour in your hand, you're interacting now with a planet. Here and now. It's not a symbol. It's a real thing. It's a real colour. And, and that's what's kind of interesting because the heavens are brought down to the earth so we can interact with the heavens now. So it's really a transportive, a transporting. Tran absolutely. It's about transformation. Alchemy is inner transformation and symbolism is the way that you can follow, point you towards that. It's your sort of guide, if you, as it were. But, but the beauty of color is that everybody can relate to it. Yeah, totally. A sunset is a sunset. And how would you like people to interact with this work here? One of the things that we wanted to do originally was how can we allow a space that would allow people to come, rest, contemplate, and then go back and see Kandinsky. 
and then come back here and rest and then go back again. And each time you oscillate between the two, another layer of Kandinsky's work hopefully will evolve. And we wanted particularly children for them to be involved in how do you get a child to be quiet, to be contemplative, to be still. So the idea of this walk was to create an activity which is physical, so they can, but also it slows you down because it takes 10 minutes to go to the center and then back again. And, and you can do it on your own. You don't need mum and dad. You can just follow the color. It's simple. So, but at the same time, you can slow your breath, be aware of your footsteps. So that means by the time you go back and look at Kandensky, hopefully you'll have fresh eyes. And that's another, another layer is added, I hope. And that sounds like a fantastic experience. Thanks so much for your time. Not at all. Desmond. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jackie and Desmond about Kandinsky. You've probably got an idea already that I think this is a must-see exhibition and probably more than once. Also, while we're talking about the Art Gallery of New South Wales, I'll be in conversation with Archibald winner Julia Goodman live at their gallery on Wednesday night, the 15th of November, in the Art Gallery Society's Artists in Conversation series, which I've been involved in. I cannot wait for this one. I loved Julia's Archibald winning portrait of the singer Montaigne. And the more I look into her textile work, the more I marvel at her skill and creative abilities. And so if you're interested in hearing from Julia, come along on the 15th. I'd love to see you there. Just a reminder, if you'd like to keep connected with the podcast, you can follow on Instagram and Facebook and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Don't forget, it's free to subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel. And if you do, you won't miss an episode or a video. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters.